Hello, and welcome to Talking Opinions. I am your host, Anthony Livingston Hall. For the record, Alabama routed Ohio on Monday to win this year's college football championship 52-24. More to the point, though, there is no denying that the college playoffs and this championship game generated as much excitement and raised as much revenue as the professional playoff games now underway and this year's Super Bowl will. In fact, there is only one appreciable difference afoot. The professional players are getting paid millions of dollars for their labor, but the college players are not getting paid one red cent. Incidentally, I was so certain the Crimson Tide was going to roll all over the Buckeyes that I texted my old college roommate, who hails from Shaker Heights, Ohio, to tease that it was going to take a miracle, not seen since that one on ice, when the Americans upset the Russians at Lake Placid in 1980 for Ohio to defeat Alabama. Alas, it was not to be. Anyway, on one lazy afternoon in May 2012, I watched an Intelligence Squared debate on the motion ban college football. Malcolm Gladwell, author of the best-selling The Tipping Point, and Buzz Bissinger, author of the best-selling Friday Night Lights, argued for the motion, while Tim Green, the football commentator and former college and NFL player, and Jason Whitlock, the nationally acclaimed sports columnist, argued against it. It wasn't even close. Gladwell and Bissinger won by riffing on two obvious and unassailable points which I proffer in my own words as follows. 1. College football is a big business that exploits mostly black and poor kids for what amounts to slave labour, complete with academic degrees that are not even worth the paper they're written on. And 2. College football defeats the declared mission of every institution of higher learning. After all, it requires players to give and receive blows to the head that cause repetitive brain trauma. In other words, it's tantamount to educating kids by having them repeatedly bang their heads against the blackboard in their classroom. Meanwhile, I had been writing about Michael Vick's mistreatment of dogs and football's mistreatment of Michael Vick for years. I refer you to such commentaries as Dogfighting Fiend Michael Vick Cops a Plea on August 21, 2007 and Michael Vick's Lament Why is everybody always picking on me? on September 28, 2011. This is why I was so intrigued when I caught Gladwell continuing his motion to ban college football by making a crude analogy between it and dogfighting. It was a year later, on a July 2013 edition of Farid Zakaria GPS on CNN. In short, he argued 
that there is no difference between the way young and vulnerable dogs are made to engage in brutal combat out of loyalty to owners like Michael Vick and the way young and vulnerable boys are made to play gladiators out of loyalty to coaches like Nick Saban, who incidentally got paid over $9 million to coach his gladiators at Alabama last year. To be sure, Gladwell's neurological and psychological points were compelling. But, even from the days of slavery, the natural law of quantum merit, which is getting fair pay for services rendered, has been far more so. Not to mention that, if boys are old enough to go to war, surely they are old enough to play gladiators on a football field, no? Which is why, from the outset of this debate, I premised my argument on simply paying every college athlete in every revenue-generating sport their fair share. I crystallized this categorical imperative in a September 2010 commentary on Reggie Bush. Perhaps you recall how he made history by forfeiting his Heisman Trophy after it became clear that NCAA trustees were about to strip him of it. This based solely on allegations that he violated amateur rules by accepting a little cash on the side for himself and family members while still at USC. But I've been arguing for years that he was a fool for giving it up without a fight. And here is why. There is nothing amateur about college football. It's a multi-billion dollar business for Christ's sake. More to the point, the people generating its revenues are not the college presidents, athletic directors, or coaches who make millions of dollars in salaries and endorsement deals. Instead, the people generating those billions are the poor, predominantly black athletes whose raw talents colleges exploit to pack stadiums on game day. And don't get me started on the chorus line of forbidden fruit cheering them on from the sidelines with their pom-poms and loose hair blowing in the wind like static confetti. I have always felt that it is tantamount to modern-day slavery for colleges to recruit poor and all too often uneducated black athletes just to play football and to not compensate them for their services. After all, it has been self-evident since time immemorial that these so-called student athletes rarely get an education, but their indentured servitude is made far worse by branding them cheaters for accepting a little cash from boosters just to make ends meet. Mind you, those boosters are only trying to make life easier for these poor kids to enable them to perform better. That is, out on the field, not in the classroom, of course. Not to mention that if the NCAA were to penalize all college players who violate amateur rules, there would be no college football worth watching. 
The point is that players like Reggie Bush have to sit and watch as NCAA trustees blithely condone coaches not only accepting millions from shoe companies but doling out free shoes to their players for promotional purposes to boot. The hypocrisy and corruption inherent in this is beyond shameful, which is why I maintain that colleges should be required to compensate student-athletes in direct proportion to the way owners of professional teams compensate their players. That said, only four teams are selected for the college football playoffs to compete for the national championship each year. And for most players, making these playoffs is the highlight of their athletic careers. Because of the nearly 3,500 college players who hope to make it each year, the professional teams draft fewer than 100. Therefore, if you're a senior facing these odds, especially if your team did not even make the playoffs, you'd be forgiven for wondering if playing college football was worth all the time and effort. After all, here you are, now worried about your worthless degree, because, until this very moment, in the locker room after your last college game, you were just too young and stupid to realize that you might actually need a college degree with some professionally redeeming value. But then, discordant laughter forces you to look up, and there, across the locker room, you see your coach yucking it up with a clueless freshman, as if neither has a care in the world. Disgusted, you place elbows on knees and bend over. And the only thing that prevents you from throwing up is your crestfallen eyes landing on those brand new shoes your coach had just given you before this last game. Of course, they were courtesy of the million-dollar endorsement deal he has with a shoe company, which supplements his million-dollar annual salary. But you'd be damned if you were going to allow that to cause you to mess up this bit of sports memorabilia, which you fully intend to be the subject of family folklore that would make even the gipper blush. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> Again, college football generates billions in annual revenues. In addition to funding less profitable sports, like gymnastics and swimming, its revenues subsidize the exorbitant salaries of college presidents, athletic directors and coaches. But Iowa State Athletic Director Jamie Pollard threw its importance in this respect into stark relief when he said, and I quote, if COVID means we can't play football, it's Ice Age time. That's because football is the gravy train that feeds everything else in college sports. And football's load has been heavy since the beginning. End quote. A pretty cold analogy to be sure. Yet Pollard was willfully ignoring this even colder analogy. 
just as the antebellum South depended on black slave labour to survive, college football depends on the indentured servitude of players to thrive. In any event, I would like to think that my decades-long agitation has advanced the cause of emancipation in this case. That, incidentally, included urging college football players way back in 2014 to threaten the kind of wildcat strike which BLM protests inspired NBA players to pull off so successfully last year. I have also been advocating for college athletes to go pro at the earliest opportunity. In addition to Reggie Bush forfeits Heisman Trophy from September 2010, mentioned earlier, I did so in student athletes make billions for colleges, but most graduate poor and dumb on January 16, 2014, the categorical imperative to pay student athletes on March 28, 2014, and salaries of college coaches reflect enduring master-slave relationships on October 28, 2016. Still, I was heartened when California finally made it legal last year for student athletes to hire agents to help them profit from their names, images and likenesses. And, seeing the writing on the wall, the NCAA followed suit in short order. Unfortunately, glaring unfairness persists, because only that explains the NCAA, allowing USC to lift its draconian tenure ban on Reggie Bush in June of last year, while refusing to return the Heisman Trophy he won on the field by the sweat of his brow. Clearly, it's contempt for the natural law of quantum merouette knows no bounds. Uh, that's it, and if you liked it, please subscribe. It's free. If you'd like to contact me, I invite you to email anthonyhall279 at gmail.com or use the contact feature on my blog at www.ipjn.com. Thank you for listening, and until the next Talking Opinions, goodbye.